Um, it's so good to uh, be with you today. I've been looking forward to this uh, for a while. Um, I hope you guys have had a good Christmas week. I, for much of the week, have been down with, uh, with the flu, so uh, pray for me that my voice would, would carry through this service. So let's pray. Father, we come to you today, to your holy word, so that we might see you. Lord, you are the great gift of Scripture. You, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are the centerpiece of all history. Lord, we have many needs that we come with this morning, people in many places in their lives. But you have designed a story that meets all of our needs. And so today, as we look at Revelation 21, which points us to this beautiful end of the story that you are writing. Lord, I pray that you would meet each of us where we are. Lord, would you help me to teach faithfully, not just the content of the sermon, but the appropriate tone. Would you help these people here in this room to hear with open ears and open hearts. And Lord, above all, I pray you'd open the eyes of their hearts to get a great vision of who you are and what you're doing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's something about the human heart that loves love. We delight in love stories. We, even in our culture, which in many ways is debunking marriage, love movies still that end with a wedding. It seems to be something of the fabric of the human heart to love love. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, my wife Kristen and I were watching uh, a few episodes of the show Say Yes to the Dress. Are you familiar with that show? Well, it's a reality TV show that follows prospective brides and their entourage as they look for the perfect dress for her. Now, this particular day was a Say Yes to the Dress marathon, and the, the network ran continual tweets in the bottom corner of the screen that made it very clear that there were lots of people all across America who were devoting an entire day to watching Say Yes to the Dress. Well, the Bible storyline features the ultimate love story. It's the only love story that really satisfies the deepest desires of the human heart. It's a story filled with twists and turns and highs and lows, but God is writing a most remarkable love story. A love story that's still being written, but it's heading in a certain direction. So how does the story end? Well, it ends, as we might expect, with a marriage celebration. Today we're ending a five-week series on Advent. If you recall, Advent is the celebration of the coming of Jesus. So we celebrate his coming as a baby in Bethlehem, but we also look forward to his promised second coming in power and in glory And as we look forward to the second advent of Jesus, when the marriage celebration will take place, our Heavenly Father wants the joy and the beauty of this vision that we're going to look at today to grow in us purity and hope. Purity and hope. We're going to look at these two things in turn, purity and hope. First, we're going to see that we must pursue purity as Christ's bride. And secondly, we're going to see that we must set our hope on the glory of the groom. So let's take a look at each of these first. We must pursue purity as Christ's bride. Look with me at verse 9. An angel comes to John and offers an invitation. 
Now, John notes here um, that this is a particular angel that's already appeared in Revelation. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The angel then takes John away, it says, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed him the holy city, Jerusalem. So does the angel show John a bride or a city? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Now, if we'd been reading Revelation uh, from the beginning up until this point, we might not be very surprised about this. Back in chapter 17, this same angel that John notes here who here shows John a bride that is a city, back in chapter 17, showed John a prostitute, which is a city. If you will, flip back with me to chapter 17, just a few pages earlier. Follow with me along, starting in verse 1. John writes this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So you hear this, you see the same angel introduces two visions in a very similar way each of a woman that is also a city, but the two could not be more different. The prostitute, Babylon, commits sexual immorality with the kings of the earth, verse 2. In verse 3, she's writing a beast filled with blasphemous names. In verse 4, she holds in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities. She's drunk drunk with the blood of the saints, verse 6. Then later on in the chapter, verse 16, it says... She's burned with fire and destroyed. That is the prostitute, Babylon's end. Now, Babylon was the most notorious enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. It was Babylon who had come and in 586 B destroyed the the whole city of Jerusalem along with the temple and seemingly ended the line of kings through David. Now, by the time John wrote this vision in the first century A.D., Babylon no longer existed. God's people still existed. Babylon did not. But this symbolic prostitute Babylon, I think, represents the whole world. The whole world, its values, its people, and its institutions in opposition to God. In chapters 17 and 18, if we read through, we can gather that it's characterized by things like self-glorification, love of money, exploitation of power and hostility toward Christ and his people. This is humanity apart from Christ, living only for ourselves and refusing allegiance to God and to the Lamb. Now the vision of the bride is strikingly different. Flip back over to chapter 21 with me. 
We saw in verse 9 that the bride is the chaste wife of the Lamb, faithfully devoted to Christ. In verse 10, she's holy. She comes down out of heaven from God. In verses 19 and 21 that we're going to look at here in a little bit, it describes her as adorned with beauty and with purity for her groom. And then in chapter 22, verse 5, it says that the bride is going to live with God forever. Look at chapter 21, verse 11 with me. It says that this holy city, Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. Now, on the day before I was going to propose to my wife, Kristen, her engagement ring was to be delivered to my house via UPS. Is anybody getting nervous? Have you seen the headlines recently? Maybe some of you didn't get your Christmas packages on time. Well, I had an elaborate plan for the next day to uh, propose to my wife. And of course, I needed this ring. And it was one of the longest days of my life. Fortunately, the UPS guy did show up at about 6 p.m. I was almost frantic by that point. But I got the package, I took it out, and I took that little ring box and and I opened it up. And inside the ring box, there was a little battery-powered light that would flip on when the box was opened, and it shone right on the diamond. And I was so enthralled by the beauty of this little light shining on this little diamond. I spent the whole rest of the night just opening this box (laughs) and admiring the beauty of this tiny battery-powered light shining on a little diamond. Now imagine if we could be enthralled and captivated by the beauty of a tiny little light on this little diamond, how beautifully captivating is going to be God's holy city shining with the radiance of the very glory of God. It's going to be beautiful. Well, what is this bride that is a city? It's, it's very symbolic here. We need to ask that question, what it is. And I think if Babylon represents the people of the world, its values and institutions in opposition to God, this bride, this holy city, Jerusalem, represents the people of God, redeemed and purified. Notice in verses 12 to 14 that there are 12 gates, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there are also 12 foundations for the walls, and on the wall, or on the the foundations, are inscribed the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I think the idea here is you have the completeness of the people of God, all those Jew and Gentile, Old Covenant and New Covenant, who are connected to the Lamb by faith. This is the bride, the completed people of God. Now, the point of this vivid contrast between, on the one hand, a prostitute, which is a city, and on the other hand, a bride, which is a city, I think is clear. I think it's this. To whom will you belong? This vision presents two options. One that is alluring and promises immediate pleasure in the indulgence of our selfish desires, but ultimately leads to death. And another that is truly beautiful and promises real, long-lasting joy. You know, pornography, adultery, the sex trade, those things are rampant in our world, aren't they? But... Still, almost everyone knows that there's no lasting joy and fulfillment in these things. But when a pure, beautiful bride devotes herself 
to a faithful husband, there is lasting joy in that. No sane person chooses a prostitute over a beautiful marriage. And these visions, these contrasting visions, I think, draw out the implications. They reveal reality for what it really is. In this world, apart from having this vision of heavenly reality, we can get deceived, can't we, into going after the prostitute. But here, God, through John, opens the veil, as it were, and shows us true reality. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus offers himself to you now, if you will have him. He paid the bride price on your behalf by laying down his own life. Even though, up until now, this point, you've rejected him. Because he wants you to be joined to him forever. Only in Christ will you find the true joy and intimacy that you long for. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not a beautiful bride. Yet. But let's pursue purity as Christ's bride. Hey, don't you want to be pure? Don't you want to live into this vision of a pure and beautiful bride? Why would we give in to the allurement of a prostitute that leads to death? Now, let's get really practical here. This is incredibly practical for your daily life. At the heart of it is this question, to whom or to, to what will you give your loyalty? How you answer that question is going to play out in endless daily decisions. Think about these, these few areas. Think about your reputation. Are you going to hold fast to the purity of the gospel message which in our culture where the God of tolerance is worshipped and the exclusivity of the gospel is necessary might mean your reputation will suffer. Are you going to hold fast to the purity of the gospel message or are you going to stay quiet or are you going to compromise? Think about the area of finances. Are you going to trust in God's promised provision for you or are you going to trust in money for your security? Are you going to be honest on your taxes in 2014? Are you going to be generous with the resources that God gives to you? Think about relationships. Think about just one relationship in particular. Parents with your children. Parents, are you going to patiently sow the seed of God's word into their lives? Trusting the power of God's spirit and his word to produce change in their lives? Or are you going to use power and abuse power by using anger to manipulate them into towing the line. Think about the area of pleasure. Are you going to seek to please Christ, finding your pleasure in his? Or are you going to settle for things like the fleeting pleasure of pornography? Because these are endlessly practical ideas here. Now, I want to make clear that this isn't just about sexuality, that list should have helped you see this, but I want to make this really clear. Purity is much more about our allegiance to Christ, the Lord of every aspect of our lives. It means that Jesus is not one of among many things that vie for our heart. We purely devote ourselves and our hearts to him. We grow in purity as we grow in affection and adoration for the Savior. This is what makes Christianity unique. It's a total transformation that begins with transformed worship in the heart. We fight nitty-gritty daily sins by fixing our eyes on this end-time marriage celebration and striving together to become a pure bride, faithful to Christ. 
Now there's one place where John, the same apostle John that writes Revelation, makes this connection between purity and looking forward to Christ. In 1 John 3, he connects the second advent of Christ with our daily effort to purify ourselves now. He writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So one motive for our striving for purity and loyalty to Christ is that one day we will see Christ, the one who's completely pure. John's vision is a gift to us to help us now to fight that battle, to feel our efforts to purify ourselves now. Now, is anybody feeling a little bit overwhelmed with the thought of purifying yourself? I I know the impurity of my heart, and you know yours. But if that's where you're at, I want you to know this. Jesus Christ died for the purpose of purifying his bride. That is his will, and he will accomplish it. When Paul writes to Christian husbands... He gives Jesus Christ as an example for Christian husbands to follow, to follow. And as he writes that, we find out something stunning about the purpose of Jesus' death. He writes this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus Christ loved an impure, blemished, wrinkled church. And he, he loved her by dying on the cross for her so that he could purify her and present her to himself in splendor. If Jesus died to accomplish that purpose, he is going to do it in your life and in mine, in the whole church. Look at Revelation 19, 7 and 8. The same idea we find here right in the context of our passage. This is the passage where this marriage celebration is introduced for the very first time. An angelic choir sings this out, and they sing this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Did you hear the balance in there? It says, we are to clothe ourselves with fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. We're to make ourselves ready. And it was granted her to do this. You see that at the beginning of verse 8? That means it was given by God to the church to become a pure bride. He will accomplish this purpose in us and through us. So this vision spurs us on to pursue purity, but it also aims to give us great hope. So first, we want to pure ourselves as Christ's bride, but secondly, we want to set our hope on the glory of the groom. We must set our hope on the glory of the groom. Now, I've been to quite a few weddings in my days, and one of the things that seems pretty universal about weddings is that the spotlight is on the bride. You never go to a wedding and see people stand as the groom enters the room. You know, the 
The music doesn't start playing when he enters. You never hear anybody whisper, did you see that cummerbund? (laughs) Or, oh, I just love his hair. I wonder where he got his hair done. The focus is on the bride, and rightfully so. But this wedding celebration is very different. Yes, the angel comes and invites John to see the wife of the lamb. But the wife, the bride, is a reflection of something much greater and much more glorious. What is most jaw-dropping about this bride is that she shines with the fullness of the glory of God's presence. We are here mainly witnessing a reflected glory in the bride. We see this from the very beginning of John's description of Christ's bride. Look again at verse 11. Again, it says, um, this, this holy city, this bride, comes down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So the very first thing that John says and reports about this city is that it shines with the radiance of God's glory. It has the glory of God. Verses 15 to 21 emphasize this same truth as well. Now, it's not normal in our wedding celebrations to take measurements of the bride and then to report them to all in attendance. But that seemingly is exactly what John and this angel do, starting in verse 15. Um, I'm glad that they do it because what we find out from what's reported is very hopeful and it's striking. The first thing that's striking is the size and the shape of the city. The city is a perfect cube, and it's massive. Verse 16 says, The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So the city is about 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep and 1400 miles tall it's a massive cube and john obviously wants us to really see that it's a perfect cube he repeats it three times just in that verse the the symmetrical measurements of the city now the second thing that's striking is the incredible wealth and beauty of the city verses 19 to 21 focus in on that the foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with precious jewels and stones The wall itself is built of pure jasper. The city, the whole city is pure gold, as clear as glass. The walls adorned with jewels describes all these. There are 12 gates that are made of single pearls. The the streets of the city are specifically said to be pure gold, like transparent glass. Now I think one point of this is that the, the city will be incredibly beautiful it will be filled with abundance. The, the streets being pure gold points to the fact that things that we view as precious and valuable and rare now will be as common as asphalt then. But I think the main point of all of this is not the necessarily the beauty of it, the point of it, the cubic dimensions, the abundance of jewels and gold is to show us that God's presence is going to fill this city The city is a giant version of the most holy place in the inner sanctuary of the temple. I think we can see this by looking at a passage like 1 Kings 6.20. Here, the the biblical writer is describing the building of Solomon's temple. 
and listen and see if you can hear any connections between the city that John has just described and the inner sanctuary. The text says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. So just like the city, this inner sanctuary, this holy of holies, was a perfect cube, and it was pure gold. And I think the point that John is trying to make here is that the city, this holy city Jerusalem, 1,400 miles cubed, is going to be absolutely filled with the glorious presence of God himself. Verse 22 goes on and makes this point more explicitly. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. So the glory of God's manifest presence, which for hundreds of years was confined to a room 30 feet cubed, which came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ, though largely veiled, will now come and dwell among us in its fullness. It's going to fill this massive city. It's going to be seen and enjoyed by all of God's people. The groom will finally move in with his bride, and the deepest longings of the human heart will be fulfilled. But John gets more specific. He's not content to talk about generalities about the glory of God. In verse 23, he points out the source from which God's glory shines more brightly. Look at verse 23 with me. It says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Just like a flashlight is unnecessary at high noon on a bright, sunny day, so now the sun and the moon will no longer be necessary. Notice, though, where the light comes from. It comes from the Lamb, who is said to be the lamp of God's glory. It's in Jesus Christ, the Lamb, that God's glory is made most visible. That's what a lamp does. It makes light visible. So here we see Jesus is the brightness displaying the glory of God. This Lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. For any Jew like John, or for any of us who've been here at College Park as we walk through the book of Exodus, the mention of a lamb would remind us of the Passover. Remember, the Passover was when Israel was commanded to kill a lamb for each family, to smear the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of God's judgment would pass over each house who had applied the blood. Jesus, we see here, is the ultimate lamb, slain so that God's judgment might pass over all those who trust in him. And it's in this simple message of incredibly good news, Jesus' death on our behalf as a substitute, it's, in, it's here that the glory of God is made most visible to us. That's why our first core value here at College Park is the preeminence of Jesus. We aim to make Jesus preeminent in everything because it's in him as the crucified and risen lamb of God that the glory of God shines most brightly. Now what's the display of God's glory in the lamb? Look at verses 24 to 27 with me. John writes, By its light, by the glory of God, by its light, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. 
They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see here that when the light of God's glory made visible in Jesus is displayed, it attracts the nations. This is what Jesus does when he is seen for who he is. Just like the Magi, as we saw in the drama, streamed to Jesus to offer down their glory, their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So now when this city is revealed and Jesus is seen to be the king of kings, the nations will stream into the city offering their glory. All enemies will be subdued. The gates will be open. There will be no need to shut them. There will be no night there. There will be no reason to fear anything. The city will be secure. There will be no, nothing unclean that will ever enter the city. So unlike the garden where an unclean serpent entered in and spoiled God's good creation, nothing will ever enter into this city to spoil God's good new creation. Life illuminated by the glory of God in Christ will be very good. So my desire for me and my desire for you is that we would set our hope on this. Now, I don't mean hope in the sense that we often use that word in the English language. We typically use the word hope to mean wishful thinking, don't we? We say things like, I I hope she likes me, when we don't really know if she likes me. We say, I hope the economy does better in 2014, when we don't know what's going to happen. So we we hope our kids grow up to walk with Jesus, and we don't know if that's going to happen or not. But... The Bible uses the word hope in a very different way. In the Bible, hope is a certain reality that we don't yet experience fully. What's tragic is that we so often set our hopes on uncertainties and then reap the consequences. Um, Like Mark mentioned, I've got four young kids, and one of the things that I've learned is that toys aren't built like they used to be built. Or maybe my memory is off. But our kids... They place their hopes for joy and happiness in these plastic toys, and they so often break. On Christmas morning, um, one of my sons got a wonderful toy dinosaur. It roars and it walks and it holds a guy on his back and everything. And he was delighted with this toy dinosaur. Absolutely, was playing for it for hours on end, didn't want to share it. But about a couple of hours later, Just one little piece on it started malfunctioning. And you saw his face fall. The delight that he had in this toy, the hope that he had in it for happiness, absolutely came to crumbles. And you could see it on his face as he cried out, My new toy! My new toy! It was sad. We (laughs) And funny at the same time. Now, we don't typically put our hope in plastic toys, but we do put our hopes in uncertainties, don't we? There are so many we could mention. We put our hope in accomplishing our New Year's resolutions. We resolve to eat less and exercise more, to read our Bibles more, to pray more. We want to become more beautiful, smarter, more spiritual. And another year rolls around, and we're the same old person with the same struggles. Hopefully, we've grown a bit, but so often disappointed with the lack of progress. We put our hopes in our retirement account. 
and our sense of security rises and falls with the stock market. We put our hopes in marriage, perhaps, if you're single. And another year goes by, and no proposal, and we're crushed. Or we put our hopes in our spouse if we are married. We smother them with expectations, and then we get angry with them when they don't measure up. We put our hope in what others think of us, and then we become paranoid as we wonder what they are thinking of us, really. We put our hope in meaningful work, and we grow disillusioned as we wonder if what we're doing matters at all. We put our hopes in health and long life, and when the doctor gives us the prognosis, we sink in despair. But what's so beautiful about John's vision is that it's certain and it's satisfying. It is able to bear the weight of all of your hopes and dreams. Think on this for a moment. This vision does not depend on the complex interdependence of global economic factors that drive the stock market. It doesn't depend on the whims of other people that you can't rely on so often. It doesn't depend on you, on your ability to plan and to perform. What it depends on is a sovereign, all-wise, faithful God who will accomplish his purposes. This vision will come to pass. You can bank your hopes on this. All the deepest desires of your heart will be satisfied completely in the Lamb. Jesus will be seen to be the desire of every nation and the joy of every longing heart. So we need purity and we need hope. And God aims to give us both of these through this beautiful preview of the marriage celebration to come. You know, Mark mentioned that <clears throat> this last year um, in, in our family has been a difficult one. And I'm so thankful that last year, this Sunday last year, I had the opportunity to preach Revelation 21, 1 to 8, the passage right before this. And I didn't know what God was preparing me for at that moment, but it was a joy to spend a few weeks studying and then to preach that message. But I think God had a purpose in that. Because there was one Saturday morning in July when I received the news that my brother had passed away unexpectedly. And I was so thankful for Revelation 21. It's been a hard year here at College Park for many of you. You need this vision and the hope that it will bring you. If you set your heart on this vision, the beauty of this vision, and the glory of God that we who trust in Christ are going to live with forever, you will have hope no matter what comes. So I pray that you guys would fix your minds on Revelation 21 this year. May it fill you with hope and a longing to be purely devoted to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that our hope rests on the security of your divine, sovereign, beautiful plan for human history. Lord, our hearts are so easily led astray by all that we see around us. We're so prone to put our hopes 
in uncertainties. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our heart on certainties that will satisfy. So Lord, may you do that in our lives this year so that we'll be rock solid and steady, so that we'll grow in our adoration and our affection for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeff, thank you for bringing God's word to us today. Praise the Lord. So grateful for not only the text, but um, having watched Jeff live out the reality of that uh, text uh, in his life. It's uh, been a privilege and a joy to see how God's word can be your hope in the midst of very difficult days. I'm also grateful that at the end of the book of Romans, after Paul talks about all sorts of great theological truths and then applies them into our lives, a book that we'll begin to study in January, he says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a great text? Maybe not a bumper sticker text, right? But, a, but, but that's, that's a powerful text. And you know why that's there in the Bible? Because I think God knows that we need to know that at the end of the day, he wins. At the end of the day, we win. Because we live in the midst of a world and culture where sometimes it doesn't feel that way. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he ends this way. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And there's the, there's the contrast. God wins, Satan will be crushed. In the meantime, here's the grace of Christ, and may the grace of Christ be with you. So after the service, there'll be some folks up here who would love to pray with you if you're in one of those valley kind of moments and you need to experience the grace of Christ. Maybe you need to be reminded that at the end of the day, Jesus does win because right now it feels like nothing's winning in your life, like the bottom's just falling out. And one of the best things to do is to have some folks pray over you when you're in that kind of season. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you have some questions about what it means to have your sins forgiven, as Jeff talked about. Folks appear to love to be able to converse with you about that as well. So it's good to know that at the end of the day, Jesus conquers all and puts Satan under the feet of those who he tempted and accused and tormented, and to know that the grace of Jesus is with us. So College Park, the grace of Jesus Christ be with you all. I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.